everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. This is Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and this is our sixth episode already. Wow. Hard to believe. Uh, last week, Drew, you talked about the sociology of knowledge and the power of culture, and we want to continue that uh, that thought uh, experiment, that thought process today, looking more deeply at kind of church and culture. So, Drew, why don't you get us kicked off? Let us know where we're going today. I want to start today. There is a, a great book, uh, very thought-provoking by Christian sociologist named James Davison Hunter called To Change the World. And he it's really a series of three, he calls them essays. They're like three books within a book. Um, essays in my mind are always shorter, but they're, they're awesome, really helpful. And in the middle one, he analyzes different postures the church takes towards culture. I, I want to give a big disclaimer, and he does as well, um, but I want to give a big disclaimer. I'm very wary of lists. There are a lot of different Christian authors who have typed or listed the way the church responds to culture. So I, and you'll get this through our podcast today, I'm not looking at any one of those. And I think if we take that too far, uh, we end up not, you know, just isn't as helpful as you'd want it to be. However, I do think that um, Hunter's analysis is a good starting point of how, how does the church respond to the culture that it's in? And I know for many of us, that's the forefront of our mind, just with political intensity or social intensity and the amount of change that's taken place. So where Hunter would start is he would look at three approaches he sees among Christians. He sees one, he calls it defensive against, and this would be the, the range of Christian churches. And, and maybe, uh, at least in the last living memory, has probably been one of the more prominent responses that you would think of where the church sees its goal as defending against the encroaching culture of secularism. And so a lot of it can at times be antagonistic uh, or, or very, very wary of this other entity coming in. And the goal is often to guard against or to protect or, you know, whatever other word, but it's a bit more hostile is probably too strong, but it's defending, it's, it's pushing away this encroaching culture. He sees a second prominent response that would be the church becoming relevant to the culture. And so rather than the church actively pushing culture away, in this response, the church is doing everything it can to make itself relevant to the surrounding culture. And, you know, there, there's, I would see these first two, there's a yo-yo, you know, there'll be times where it's this real intensity against the culture, and then it'll swing. Even in a variety of traditions, this could both be the liberal gospel, but it could also be seeker-sensitive movements or other groups that come along where the real question is, how do we make this as relevant as possible to the world around us? And then there's a third group that is probably not as prominent, but um, still some great theologians have emerged out of this. And this group is saying neither of those are right. The job of the church is to be separate from the culture. And this is a, a withdrawal um, from culture. And you see this in certain Pentecostal groups, fundamentalist Baptist, a lot of the Anabaptist tradition a variety of groups where they just say, you know what, forget culture. We're going to go do our own thing, and we're going to be our own society as the church. And so I think these postures are at least a good starting point for analyzing what are types of ways the church can respond. 
Yeah, none of these phenomenons are new. As you look at church history back over 2,000 years, you see these cycles over and over again, right? I was thinking as you're talking, Drew, of the monastics during the height of Roman Catholicism and some of the abuses and indulgences and so on. And you had these monastic movements that that pulled away and really preserved a uh, a faithful Christian witness. And so I think a disclaimer would be we're not denouncing any one of these postures right off the bat, but I think there's a balance and a rhythm to these uh, over the centuries. You know, when I look at the scriptures, I see that probably each of these postures has some shred of truth to it in terms of a manifestation that the church or a posture that the church needs to maintain, just depending upon the different contexts that we find ourselves in. Some of the scriptures that come to mind in terms of that that idea of this kind of defensive posture, fighting against culture, you know, First Peter 2.11, Peter's urging the church as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Now, that's more of an internal fight, this idea that there is a, a true battle, uh, the world, the flesh, the devil, that is seeking to corrupt the pure witness and that pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So there is a an antagonism that is talked about, almost this militant type of language, but typically that's kind of an internal posture fighting against those, those temptations that wage war on the soul. I think of in terms of relevance, I think of Paul and his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9. He talks about becoming all things to all men. You see him adapting and contextualizing his gospel presentation, depending upon where he was. Uh, When he preached the gospel in the Areopagus in Athens, he he spoke very differently about the nature of creation and the person of Jesus and had a more contextualized approach to the Athenians. Uh, And we'll talk more about this in a moment, but I think the overall posture of the church is this idea of in but not of, a society within a society. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 John 2, there's this tension that you see of the church preserving and manifesting a culture and a characteristic that is very countercultural, uh, but at the same time being embedded within, incarnating the gospel within culture. Yeah, and uh, I, I see it with society as a whole, there are times where we do need to stand against and be actively defending against unrighteousness. I, you know, people's lives can be at stake. You see that whether it's abortion or racism or, you know, there, there's plenty of areas where um, I think that is the right posture and how the church needs to be responding. There's also, it is right to be relevant. Uh, you know, there was uh, in the Catholic tradition at Vatican II, they updated it to where the language of the Catholic Mass could be in the common vernacular. But up to that point, it was Mass was in Latin. So the vast majority of people attending church didn't even understand the language. And, uh, you know, that's an extreme example. But you see that played out where uh, beautiful traditions of the church can get lost because we're not able to make it relevant to emerging generations and the message gets lost along the way. And so that's obviously important as well and uh, obviously very nuanced. And then uh, there are times where you know, I look at our society today, and I feel a little bit of a temptation on the withdrawal, not not too far extreme, but just taking a step back from everybody's swirling intensity of saying, I don't want to get sucked into the spirit of our age. I think there is a little bit of distance that can be helpful. So all of these postures can be good and can be right. I think they're toolkits on our utility belt as as believers. And I look at eras and times and faithful uh, men and women in history who've who've leaned into all three of these, and so, yeah. To your point, Mick, we're not we're not saying that any one of these is always wrong. 
What I would say is any one of these, if we make it absolute, will lead the church astray. And this is my concern where um, if we get so focused against defending against culture, at some point, it becomes a lot about human power. And I think that's where you see the church get compromised throughout history. And, you know, there's been wars fought and all kinds of stuff over, over the years where it's so focused on preserving something. When it's all about being relevant too, we water down the power of the message where it's right on the one hand for me to say, how do I make the gospel relevant to somebody? But when all I care about is relevance, it becomes ultimately about fitting in. And I had a conversation with a friend where we asked the question, given everything going on in our society to the, today and you know sin that's been exposed in the church, can the church ever be respected again? And I thought about that. And I actually think the answer is no. Because I think if we actually follow the ways of Jesus, it's going to put us on a collision course that we can't avoid. So I don't want, I don't want it to be my own hypocrisy that causes people not to respect the church. But if my goal is to be respected by society, then the only way for that to happen is for me to compromise my message. And so uh, that, that's a tension that as the church, um, if, if our goal purely becomes relativizing the, the gospel to where there's not tension in society, then the church ultimately is not going to be the church anymore. And then lastly, if we withdraw, you know, there, there's time and a place for that. But ultimately, why are we still on the earth? If it was purely about withdrawing from the society, like why, why are we not in eternity already? So God clearly intends for his people to be on the earth and active in the earth. And I don't see anything in scripture about people permanently pulling away. And even the, the best of the monastic tradition, they would intentionally place the monasteries at the crossroads of society. It wasn't just being separate forever, but it was being separate to then be able to be a witness. And I think in that same way, there are appropriate places to withdraw. But if that gets taken to an absolute, we, we end up chasing this ideal of a pure church that I think that's the wrong posture that, that Jesus has given us for how we're supposed to react towards culture. There is a uh, missiologist, a guy, a Scottish missiologist by the name of Andrew Walls, um, that I found to be really helpful and um, powerful. I also um, enjoy reading the British theologian Leslie Newbegin and several others, you know, where they really talk about the church's posture and they're approaching it from missiology of taking the gospel into other nations. I think we're at a new stage with the American churches. We're back to missiology in our own country. So we have to take these same principles and apply them here as well. And Andrew Walls, he ha- has this principle. He calls it the indigenization and the pilgrim principle and I'll explain the terms. Indigenizing is to make it relevant to the culture. Is uh, When something is indigenized, it has the language, the cultural feel. It's been appropriated by the culture as its own. It's not an outside entity anymore, but it's something that emerges within um, and through the culture. You know, For all of us in our own cultural backgrounds, unless you are a direct descendant from the first century Jewish community at some point along the way, Whatever cultures we came from indigenized the gospel message and made it our own, uh, for better or for worse. And so that's the indigenization principle. The flip side of that is there's a pilgrim principle. And the pilgrim principle is that the church is always called to walk against the grain of culture at some level. And just as we're making the gospel relevant to the culture and it's being embodied within a culture, we're also calling on Christians to live as pilgrims meaning we can't be too comfortable in the culture. There should always be tension between the Christian and the surrounding culture at some level um, because we're not, we're not called to be of this world, even as we are called to live within the world. Yeah, Andrew, to comment on that posture of being defensive against, 
you know, I think of the modern notions of con- conflating Christendom with certain political parties. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Just this temptation, when you see the encroachment of secularism in terms of family or sexuality or whatever your uh, issue happens to be that you're really passionate about, there is a temptation to to seize power, right? To to promote or to advocate for some some sort of societal change from a political standpoint. And maybe in another episode, we'll really parse that out and, and look into where is it appropriate for the church to engage those issues. But when I look back at history, anytime the institution of the church became blended with the state in in a political way, it really did signal the demise of the influence of the church in terms of a gospel influence in that society. And I think the distinction here is the institution of the church versus the, the people, the individuals being the church. I think the tension, some of the tension that you're describing, Drew, is how do we, as the people of God, uh, salt society and, and be in and among the systems and to make disciples of both the souls and the systems of our society, but for the institution of the church to not grasp for political power. Think of so many examples throughout history where where the church has tried to promote a certain kind of way of life from the top down in terms of an institutionalizing of morality. And though it is well-intentioned, eventually when you blend church and state together, the church, the, the state rather, is going to make demands on the church that uh, were never intended, that the church does not agree with in terms of ethics and morality. And so the conflation of those two entities typically, though well-intentioned, has not served the church's purpose over the long haul. Yeah, I, I would say fundamentally it comes down to how we understand the power of God versus human power and human agency. I think it is the role of the church to be the pillar and the support of truth. And, um, you know, it certainly is different in a society where the Christians are 2% of the population to 50, and there's there's some inherent level of power there where where I would see we start to get off track is where we put our hope in pu- human power and our attention is on human power. To me, that's not what's modeled to us in Scripture. And it's not that all human power is bad. Um, we have to exercise it. We just like it's not we can't not live in culture. We can't not live without some form of government. We can't not live without hierarchy and without the exercise of our own power. So those things are unavoidable and they're not they're not inherently sinful, but they're marred by sin like everything else. And when they become an absolute, that's where we get off track. When they become a goal or a primary goal, uh, that's where I start to get concerned. And so it's it's so nuanced. Obviously, you could take any one issue, and there's certainly a time and place for believers to band together and take a stand. And there's a time and a place for us to patiently wait for God to show up, you know. And so it's it's a complicated topic. And the more I've studied it, the more I uh, my head just hurts because I'm like, I don't I don't know how, how do you handle it at different times. But what I do think is important is where our attention is focused, and that has to be on Jesus. And our hope has to be in his power breaking into this world. We have to have a bigger vision of the kingdom of God. And when I say that, we have to understand the kingdom of God to be God's kingdom, where he has the authority, he holds the rule. And we've, we've gone into this um, in previous episodes. We have to have a bigger view of God's authority, God's power, God's kingdom breaking in. It's the professor like to say, you know, the, the Greek word apocalypse, where Um, It's not just talking about the end times. It's talking about God's kingdom that breaks into the world independent of human power and agency. And God reveals himself by his own hand. 
And when that's my attention, it unlocks all kinds of solutions for the problems we have in our society. So yes, I need to be active and involved. My attention is on Jesus and what he's going to do. And that, that, to me, that changes everything. Hunter's book that I quoted earlier, what he really advocates for is a posture of faithful presence, where we're present in the world, but we're faithful, fully devoted to Jesus. And Leslie Newbegin, uh, he says a lot of the same thing. You know, uh, he did a lot of ministry in India, but then came back and uh, ministered in England a couple decades ago when England was going through a similar transition to post-Christian society as we're in today. And he really saw the mission principles that he learned in India being applicable to uh, modern England. One of his, you know, he, he did a lot with interfaith dialogue. So he'd meet with Hindu leaders, Muslim leaders, and then secular leaders. And there's, in those groups, it's so tempting to water down all your differences and kind of have this default universalism. And he really went the opposite way. He said, actually, for me to have any meaningful dialogue, I have to be very clear about what I believe. That then becomes the foundation for me to have dialogue. And I see that as similar to what Hunter's saying. You know, it's, we have to be clear on who we are as believers. We have to be faithful to the word of God, unapologetic about what we believe. And that then provides our foundation to have dialogue, to engage our world as it starts from clarity, not start, don't start from being wishy-washy. Don't just how oh, we all believe the same. It's like, that's not honest. That's not true. That's not even possible. But if we can get clear on what we believe and who we are in Jesus, if we're clear on who our authority is, then, then we can turn around and have great dialogue and treat each other with respect and walk in humility. Um, but it starts with faithfulness. And so if I was, I was thinking about all this on a walk yesterday and reframing it, uh, and I know we're, we're using a lot of words and authors are quoting here, um, but hopefully you can see the, the immediate relevance. I was reframing it theologically. And I do that sometimes when I get confused or when something there's just, I get caught up in all the nuance. I'm like, okay, let's pull it back. Where is Jesus in this? And I got to thinking, I think we need a, a vision of the entirety of who Jesus is as a person. Where we get off is where we reduce Jesus to a concept. Jesus was incarnated into a culture. And so culture is not bad. The very act of Jesus becoming a human being Living in a culture should tell us that God does not view culture as inherently evil. Culture is necessary. Culture is not fundamentally sinful, though it's marred by sin. And so incarnation is important. The gospel has to be incarnated. And if it's not incarnated, and if we're not asking the question, how do we put flesh on the gospel so that people can meet Jesus, then they don't, they don't access his saving power. So the incarnation is right. And Jesus was incarnated and ministered, leading the way to the cross. The cross will never be culturally relevant. The cross is the opposite. It is the denial of human life itself. It's, it's self-sacrificial by its very essence. It's the worst of human culture that became the agent of salvation. There is nothing culturally relevant in any culture that I know of on earth about the cross. So when we lead people to the cross, the gospel is incarnated and it goes to the cross. And if we avoid the cross, we don't have any faith. The Christian faith is just reduced to ethics. And our hope has to be in the resurrection. And that's that whole thing about human power. At the end of the day, we come to the cross and we die to ourselves. But then our hope is in Jesus resurrecting us again. And that resurrection, we see taste of it in this life with the power of God poured out and the breakthrough of God. And it's our hope eternal. And if we get that right, we incarnate the gospel 
but we lead people to the cross and then we're looking to the power of God to show up and break into the world for our vindication and our hope. If we stay focused on that, I think that's how we navigate whatever cultural complexity we come into. That's really good, Drew. I've been talking a lot with some colleagues about Jesus's prayer in John 17, where Jesus was praying that the church would be one. And if you look at a lot of the apostolic prayers throughout the New Testament, a lot of them have to do with this theme of unity, of harmony, and oneness. And, you know, as I survey the landscape today, look on social media and see all of the quarreling among the church and the dichotomizing and this kind of binary thinking, I've been wondering and asking, how does the church manifest this oneness, this unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17? And I think the answer in, in part, Drew, um, to just affirm what you're, you're saying is this idea of Jesus so occupying 100% of our field of view as believers, as the church, for the person of Jesus, his message, his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promise of his eventual return, all the parables of the kingdom of heaven is like, and it portrays him as this judge who judges with finality and separates the sheep from the goats. And there's this final accounting. I feel like there's been a diminishing of the primacy of the person of Jesus among the church at large. And that's just a a, a broadly sweeping, generalized statement. I think that's the only hope, though, for the church to truly be one and to come together in this day and age is for the person of Jesus to loom large in our hearts and our minds and our affections and our prayers and our fellowship and our worship. And then from that posture, now let's have civil dialogue about uh, these very important issues. But the issues of our day, the political issues, the social issues, the ideological issues, they just they're dwarfed in comparison to the worship of the person of Jesus and the fellowship of the saints, at least the way I read the scriptures and see the prioritization of Jesus's prayers and the apostles' prayers of the the unity of the body, the oneness of the, of the body around the person of Jesus. And I was thinking of a early 20th century reformed pastor, Leonard Verduin, and he would use the phrase, a society within a society, speaking of the church that the church has this very distinct, distilled culture being modeled after the person and the ways of Jesus that is very countercultural really throughout history, no matter the continent, no matter the century. And then the scattering of the church into society, uh, the people of God being like salt, literally salted across society in every domain, sphere of influence, Uh, every neighborhood and city, and then manifesting that culture uh, within their context, but then pulling back into the church again, the the gathering, the ecclesia, to re-manifest that New Testament culture. And the picture I get, even as I'm talking, is like a way, you know, if you've been to the beach, you see the waves crash on shore and then pull back and crash on shore and pull back. And I see this kind of rhythm of the church pulling together to focus on Jesus, to worship Jesus, to get re-centered, to, again, manifest that, that culture of heaven, that society of heaven. 
and to be re-envisioned and empowered and then going out into our jobs and into our communities and Little League practice and the soccer fields and the boardrooms and wherever it is, knowing that we're part of a, a society behind us that has our back and that shares our our vision and our values for what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then with the Holy Spirit's guidance and help, we manifest that kingdom within those systems and then pulling back again into the fellowship of the believers. Yeah, I think what's really significant, Mick, about what you're saying is it's important for us to remember Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. They are not philosophical ideas. They are not a code of ethics. They are not a fluffy concept. And as such, we need to relate to them as people, and we have acknowledged them as king. And so the implication of that is if my gaze, I just could not agree more, my gaze has to be on Jesus. And if it is, then I am acknowledging that he is my king. And that means every part of me, my my desires, my politics, my perspective, my desire to fit in with culture, like all of that submitted to his kingship. And if it's going to be imperfect and I'm going to see stuff different than people. And that, that's all fine. But my, my fixed point is Jesus. And I believe uh, that the Holy Spirit is active in the world today, guiding us, leading us. And so what the front of my mind needs to be is, what does it mean for me to follow? And I think for, for us, if I was going to give this podcast a pastoral note, we need to have a posture of following Jesus. I think faithful presence or being the society within the society will not happen if we try to do it in our own. But it, but if we we can take a step back and say, our gaze is fixed with Jesus, our heart attitude is we want to follow and we want to be led right now. And being led at times means being open to conviction where we've allowed the swirling intensity and the emotional intensity of culture to take up too big of a view. And I'd even offer a little challenge of if you find yourself getting caught in the social media, you know, um, endless, I don't want to call it a bunny trail. It's a lot more malignant than that. You know, it's that, that swirling whirlpool of doom, you know, where you just can't get away from it. It's not that the issues aren't important. They just don't have ultimate importance. And so take a step back on what has ultimate importance. Look at the person of Jesus. Let him take up your attention. And that's what leads to the unity. And that's what's ultimately going to guide us with a lot of tricky questions as we go into our culture. Swirling whirlpool of doom, social media. Hashtag, somebody get it going. There was a takeaway from this episode. Uh, you know, when I just in closing here, when I think of a couple of passages of scripture that characterize the church. One is Second Chronicles 714. And of course, the context there is an Old Testament context, but I believe you can extrapolate that out to apply to the people of God in, in, uh, in every century. If my people who are called by my name, and that's not Americans, it's not even the nation of Israel ultimately, but the people of God who are called by his name, his followers, his disciples, will humble themselves, pray, turn from their sin, seek my face, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Humility, prayer, devotion, repentance. These are the, the four words that have been on my mind as I've been praying for the church in America, praying for the church in the West. I don't know how the average person on the street would characterize the church who's an unbeliever, but I don't think the four words that would come to mind immediately are humility, prayer, devotion, and repentance in terms of you know the kind of the Warshock test, what first comes to mind when you hear the word church? But that's the prayer. Would we be marked by humility, prayer, 
uh, devotion, repentance. And then, of course, the Beatitudes be a great place to to camp in this day and age with everything going on politically in our culture. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I feel like that should that one verse should go at the bottom of all of our phones and the computers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your re- your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So may it be said of us in this day that we are marked by the, the Beatitudes, the character of Jesus, the, the way of his ministry, may it be the way of the church today. Well, thanks for joining us, friends. As always, uh, feel free to, uh, to comment, to share these episodes. If you find them helpful, send them on to a couple of friends, and we will catch you next time on Ideology.